Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. We'll be there in just a moment. We are delighted to have each of you with us on this crisp morning. And as Dan said in our opening, when I came in this morning, the sun was sparkling through the ice on the trees and looked like crystal everywhere you looked. Just a beautiful, beautiful sight. We welcome those who are also watching us on live stream. We're glad you could join us, and we look forward to us all being together someday very soon. We appreciate that very much. This morning, I want to talk to you about sermons. Now, you might think, well, that is of interest on this side of the pulpit, not that side of the pulpit. But it is. We find a lot of sermons written in our Bible. I liked the story one time, right before a preacher got up to preach, his wife handed him a note. It said, kiss with a little heart on there. And somebody said to her, isn't that sweet? She said, I was telling him to keep it short and simple. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said about sermons, he says, when I see a man preach, I want to see him as if he's fighting bees. And I'm not sure what that means. When I fight bees, I run screaming, so I don't, I don't know what that means. Someone else said, a sermon should start with an earthquake and go up from there. Yet another person said, a sermon should have a great beginning and a great end and the two ends not far apart from each other. When we come to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, we find what I believe is the greatest sermon of all time, preached by the greatest preacher of all time, that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon that has been the basis of countless books, Hundreds and thousands of articles. The writer Yancey said this about this. He says, if I fail to understand this teaching, I fail to understand him. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, what we find is the core of the gospel. What Jesus is describing is, what is it like to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? It begins with eight pithy statements we call the Beatitudes. It ends with a crashing of the foolish man's house during a storm. And in between all this, we find heaven's viewpoint on all kinds of subjects. Subjects such as anger, worry, lust, forgiveness, influence, prayer. And running through this sermon is the idea and the thread of righteousness. We are to be a righteous people before a righteous God. Chapter 5 really talks about the righteousness we have toward others. How we treat other people. Chapter 6 is the religious chapter of this sermon, and it's about our righteousness toward God. Who can stand before God except someone who has a pure heart, the psalmist would say. Chapter 7 reflects our righteousness toward ourselves, our attitudes, our motives, and all those things that go into that. But this morning what I want to do is I want to look at chapter 7, and I want to look at the very end. How did Jesus end this sermon? You know, endings are important. We just saw this past week the ending of Tom Brady's football career. For almost everybody, we say, yes, finally, we didn't think it ever going to happen. And there's a lot of important things about how you end. When we think about Charles Dickens' book, The Christmas Carol, he ends it with this one sentence. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God blesses everyone. The Bible ends with this sentence, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. But what we see in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, what we often call the golden rule, I believe that's the last 
principle Jesus is teaching here. There he says in Matthew 7, verse 12, what, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. For this is the law and the prophets. And the remaining verses, a series of contrasts, are really his conclusions. We find in this that there are two gates. We find that there are two paths. We find that there are two crowds. We find that there are two destinations. We find that there's two teachers. There's two kinds of fruit. There's two claims, and there are two foundations. All of this is kind of wrapping up his sermon. And what Jesus is telling the audience, because as Matthew 7 ends, the declaration is made, we've never heard these words before. No one speaks the way this man speaks. And what Jesus is declaring there at the very end, now that you've heard these words, now that you've heard my words, what are you going to do with them? And that's really placed before us. What are we going to do with them? And what Jesus is driving at in this sermon is he wants them to obey. As he begins that one contrast about the wise man and the foolish man who built their houses upon different foundations, the one who withstood the storm was the one who heard and did what Jesus said. His house was built upon the rock. That's what Jesus is driving at at the end. He's not just saying, this is a great sermon. Don't leave saying, I like your words, Jesus. Jesus is saying, now... What are you going to do with these words? Because these are a matter of choices. The choice determines whether the kind of life you'll live and the eternity you have. And this choice also will determine whether they can survive storms or not. He didn't say do these things and there'll never be a storm. You're going to have storms. But listen to my words. Do what my words say. And your house, your faith will stand. And then these choices shape the character and define what kind of person you will be. Now, our focus this morning is just upon two verses. As we come to the conclusion of this sermon, we want to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14. Let's read it, and then we're going to just look at the layers that's found in this wonderful, wonderful sermon that Jesus has for us. Matthew chapter 7, and begin here with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, not exactly the words we would think Jesus would use. We would think he'd be more upbeat. We think he'd be more inclusive. But he's telling us the way to heaven, the gateway to heaven. And what we find here is that the crowd is small. The path is difficult, and the gate is narrow. And it's that concept that we need to talk about today. First thing we need to appreciate is, it is God who determines the width of that gate. Not you, not me, not the church. Who determines how wide that gate is that allows people to go into heaven? It is God who determines that. Now, some people want that gate to be more narrow than what God made it. And let me give you a couple examples of that. Turn with me in the Bible to the book of Luke in chapter 15. We remember Luke 15, we find the three lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy, the prodigal son. But notice how this chapter begins. Luke 15, verse 1, verse 2. 
Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What they want is that gate narrow. We want only Pharisees to go through this gate. We don't want the tax collectors. We don't want the sinners. And so that's what some people do. I want to make the gate more narrow than what God has. Another example of this is found late in your Bible, the book of 3 John, where John warns us about this individual by the name of Diotrephes. Notice what it says in 3 John, verse 9, verse 10. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, neither does he receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. I decide who's going to be in this church. I decide who's going to go to heaven. It is God who determines the width of this. But on the other side, there are those who want the gate to be wider than it is. I want all kinds of people to go in. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you go to church or not, it doesn't matter. I want everybody to go to heaven. And that's a wonderful wish. But as we consider that, it is only God who can forgive us. In Mark chapter 2, as the man was lowered through the ceiling, the first thing that Jesus said to him is, Thy sins are forgiven. And when a group heard that, they said, why does this man speak this way? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive. Only God can add to the book of life. And so we need to remind ourselves as we think about the narrow way, what it means and how important it is to kind of understand that concept. So the gate is narrow. What does that mean? Well, it means it's confining. What it means is it's restrictive. What it means is exclusive. If I want to get on the other side of this picture here, if I want to get on the other side where that open place is, I'd have to walk through that thing. It's the only way around there. And that is the very definition of truth. Truth is narrow, truth is restrictive, and truth is exclusive. To illustrate that, turn with me in the Bible to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. The passage that deals with unity. Ephesians chapter 4 he says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, verse 5, one faith, one baptism. I want two baptisms. No. I want three different gods. No. Because truth, the narrow way, is confining, restrictive, and exclusive. Now, what this also means is it's not easy to be different. We like easy. We like when kids are small and we got this box and we had to put it together and we like just two pages of instructions. We like that. I remember getting some things and it looked like I had to have a college degree to put things together. And on the cooking channel, what do they say? This is easy. Anybody can make this. We don't like somebody say, don't try this at home because you'll never do this. We like easy. The Eagles sing a song, take it easy, and we like that concept. But what we find is it's not often easy to be different because to be different is you're noticed. 
Now, the world looks at this in two ways. Some people dress differently. Some people wear, wear weird clothes, do weird things to their head and their face, so they look different. Jesus is talking about an internal difference. Your attitude is different. Your motive is different. Your words are different. Grace, forgiveness, and compassion is part of your makeup. You come across different, and that makes you that way. It's also not easy to resist temptation, and the Bible teaches that. Satan is strong. Satan is powerful. Everywhere you go, he goes. He's always putting temptation before your eyes. He's always putting it in your mind. You wake up and there's temptation. You go to sleep and temptation's there. It's always there and it's, it's a struggle. It's hard to fight temptation. And then thirdly, it's not easy to endure. It's always easy to quit. You get discouraged. You're feeling the blues. You just don't feel like going on. That long walk home from the cemetery, that hard day at work, when things just aren't going well in your life, you just think, you know what? I just don't feel like going on. But the gate is narrow, and we need to remind ourselves of that. And so because the gate is narrow, it's too narrow to include my opinions. You know, here's what I think we all do as a church now. That's not going to fit through that narrow gate. Only God's way is going to fit through that narrow gate. Well, why don't we do this? Because that's your opinion. It's too narrow for that. Also, it's too narrow, as we think about some concepts there, it's too narrow for my excuses. You know, I just can't do these things because of this and because of that. And don't try to carry your excuses through that narrow way because they simply will not fit. It's too narrow for your sins. Don't try to go to heaven with your sins. Don't try to go through life thinking, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do these things. I'm going to keep living immorally. I'm going to keep talking with a potty mouth. I'm going to keep having a sorry attitude. I'll go to church when I feel like going to church. No one tells me. That narrow way is too narrow for that. You won't get through that. Not at all. It's also too narrow for what other people say. It's too narrow for what other preachers say, including this preacher. It's too narrow for what you find on Google. It's too narrow for what other churches say. It's too narrow for what other books say. Only God's way will get you through there. And it's too narrow for your pride. I often tell young preachers, every church I've ever been to, little country churches, big city churches, they always have double doors. I said, do you know why they have double doors? Of course, the young preachers say, no, why do they have double doors? I said, to get your head through it. Because when you're done Sunday morning and you hear all those people say what they say about your sermon, you think you can walk on water. You cannot walk on water. And pride and stubbornness will keep us out of heaven. And so Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the concept. And so when Jesus is describing this path, it's a narrow path. It is a difficult path. It is a narrow gate. We have to look at, okay, am I going to use God's dealing with anger or my way of anger? Am I going to look at how God talks about worry or the way I look at worry? God talks about influence or the way I want to use influence. God's way of praying or my way of praying. You see, there's a narrow way, and we have to see that. Now, although the gate is narrow, we've got to begin by understanding you can get through it. And that's what Jesus is driving at in the sermon. He's not painting a picture. It's so hard, don't even try. 
Only a few of you will ever, ever make it. That's not the call of heaven. John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that whosoever believeth. And we have that old hymn, whosoever surely meaneth me. Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Not just some of you. Well, you know what? Here you come, but you know what? You can't make it. It's too narrow for you. He doesn't say that. And there's great hope in that. So you may not be like everyone else. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the starter on the team. You may not even made the team. You may not be on a roll material. You may not be one who can decipher numbers. You may be one who has troubles remembering the book of the Bible in order. Lots of things that you may not be, but you can believe in Jesus Christ. And you can do what God says. That's why he's driving that in this sermon. Here is all these principles I'm saying. You, even though it's a narrow way, even though it's difficult, and even though you may not have very many companions going with you, and you may have the world telling you, you don't have to do that. Everybody we know is doing differently. You can do what God says. Now let's put a couple more verses on this. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Because sometimes when we read this passage about the narrow way, and there's only a few that make it. That plays with our mind. Sometimes we get the idea, well, when we get to heaven, there's probably going to be about six of us, because there's going to be a few people. And I don't know how the scene's going to be, but it, it, we'll just do the best we can, because the number's few. But look over here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. Now stop there for a moment. In the book of Revelation, he's already counted seven churches. And he's counted seven bowls of wrath. And he's going to count 144,000 and 1,000 year range. He's counted some big numbers up to this point. But up to this point, he says, here's a number I can't count. Too big. And where are they? From every nation. Stop there. Won't be just us Americans in heaven. We've got to get beyond that. We've got to get beyond the idea that God's beloved is America. We've got to get beyond that the most faithful and largest churches are in America. We've got to get beyond that God has an American flag hanging up there in heaven. We've got to get beyond that. These are people from every single nation. Nations are no longer around today. Nations that change their names. Nations that haven't come yet. But from every single nation, he said, look what comes next. He says, and of all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. They cry out with a loud voice, saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. This is the scene of heaven, packed with people. So many people he couldn't count. And all the angels were standing around the throne, it says. Verse 12, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders answered me, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He's talking about 
the faithful of God in heaven. And the point of that simply is, it's a narrow way. Yes, it is. And the path is difficult. Yes, it is. But you can make it. And that's a great hope and glory we need to see. Secondly, you can be approved by God. You can be approved by God. And again, as we got Revelation open, turn with me to the first chapter. Revelation chapter 1. And as John begins writing this visionary book, he says in verse 4 of Revelation 1, John to the seven churches there in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us. King James Version says, washed us from our sins by his blood. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21, as we read about the talents, as the one with five talents stood before the master, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus Christ is a propitiation for our sins, First John says, and for the sins of the entire world. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. To save the wretch like me. You need to see, as we look in our lives, it's not because you're the prettiest. It's not because you've got the degrees. It's not because all this and that. It's because of the grace of God and your faith that makes all the difference. The sins that you've repeated over and over for a long time can be forgiven. The sin you did just one time can be forgiven. The sin that everyone knows about can be forgiven. The sin that no one knows about can be forgiven. The sin that hurt a lot of people can be forgiven. The sin that seemed to do no hurt to anyone can be forgiven. The words that you should have never said, the stories you should have never repeated, the liquor that you never should have drunk, the drugs you never should have taken, the fornication that you never should have committed, the hatred, the prejudice, the jealousy, the anger, the people you let down, the promises you broke, the lies that you told, the Bible that you ignored, the pride that filled your heart, the far country that you longed for, all of that is our story. And when we hear that, we think, I don't have a hope of getting through that little gate. But Jesus is saying, yes, you can. Not because of you but because of me. You can stand approved by God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, that we make it our ambition to please God. There's a story of a family out in the country that quit going to church services for years and years. There's three boys, and John, Sam, and Jim. One day they were out in the woods doing something, and Sam got bit by a rattlesnake. It was serious. Called the doctor in, and the doctor kind of just shook his head. Called for the preacher to come over. Would you pray? And the preacher prayed this prayer. He says, O wise and righteous Father, we thank thee that in thy wisdom thou hast sent this rattlesnake to bite Sam in order to bring him to his senses. He's not been in church services for years and years. It's doubtful that he has in all these years until now ever felt the need to pray to you. It seems, therefore, Father, what we tried to do in all of our efforts did nothing. But this rattlesnake has accomplished what we tried to do. 
We trust, O oh Father, that thou send at least another snake to bite John and Jim. And then send the biggest snake you can find, Father, and bite the father of this family. So send them, we pray, three bigger and better rattlesnakes. Now, that's a cute little story. But I wonder if we need some rattlesnakes in our own home to wake us up and to realize that this is serious stuff. There's a famous picture that somebody painted several years ago. It's called Your First Day in Heaven. And that's what it looks like. And that could be your picture. Not because you're so smart, not because you're so great, but because of the grace of God. All of us have passed, all of us have a story, but all of us have Jesus Christ. And that's the idea we need to see as we kind of look at these things together. Then the third point of our lesson is that God can use you. God can use you. We sing that hymn, there's room in the kingdom, there's a place for you, and God can use you. In your Bible, look with me in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Well, there, Paul would say this concerning this. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created to work for God. In Mark chapter 14, verse 8, as a woman anointed Jesus and some of the disciples kind of got on her, said the perfume should have been sold and given to the poor people, the Lord's response was, She has done what she could. The Andrew who brought his, bar, his brother. The Barnabas who stood up and defended Saul. A Paul who pro proclaimed the gospel. A Dorcas who made clothes for the disciples. The gate is narrow, but there's room even for the one talent man. The gate is narrow, but there's room for you to be the hand, the foot, and the eye of God. That's the concept. And so as Jesus ended what I believe was the greatest sermon of all, he wanted his disciples to see, what are you going to do with these words? Don't settle for what's easy. Settle for what's right. Settle for what's best. Let me read this little article. It's kind of out of season, but it will hit us. It's hard, the writer says, to have an eye-catching, award-winning yard. But anybody can have a crummy yard. You don't have to know the names of weeds to have a crummy yard. You don't have to invest a lot of money to have a crummy-looking yard. No yard service is necessary to have a crummy yard. All you have to do is nothing, absolutely nothing. Don't water, don't fertilizer, don't put on grub control, don't pull weeds, don't sharpen the mower blades, don't put on grabgrass killer, crab grass killer, don't pick up the trash that's in your yard, don't rake the leaves, don't mow regularly, don't do anything. And in a very short time, even the best yards look crummy. It's all so easy. And before you know it, all your neighbors will be talking about your crummy-looking yard. And if you decide to quit mowing it, the city may even come out and give you a citation and impose a fee upon you. But the same thing works for our family, our marriage, our health, our finances, and our spiritual life. Do nothing, and they'll be crummy. Your marriage falls apart if you do nothing. Your children become worldly if you do nothing. Your health, your finances will become eyesores if you do nothing. And most importantly, if you do nothing, you will lose your soul. All it takes to have a crummy life is to do nothing. And so we need to realize what Jesus is trying to get his listeners to do as he even transcends that to us is, what are you going to do with these words? And we need to see just doing what everyone else is doing won't work. We have to do what the Lord wants us to do. Have I chosen the correct gate? Am I traveling down the right road? 
Does my tree bear the right fruit? Am I following those who teach the truth? Is my faith being demonstrated in good deeds? Do I truly know Jesus Christ? I am his and he is mine. That's what we're driving at this year as we think about this concept. And so that's the idea. How Jesus ended that sermon was powerful. A series of contrasts. And what the audience was supposed to see, whether they saw it or not then, what we should see, whether we see it or not, is that we're in one of those two contrasts. I'm either the one going through that narrow gate with very few people, or I'm on that wide plain where it's very easy. And we know the contrast of that. Try to roll up a ball of yarn. You can do that while you're watching TV. You don't even have to look at it. But thread a needle. You got to be very careful, don't you? Come out here like I did this morning when there's only one car or no cars, and then park it. How easy it is. Go downtown Louisville and parallel park. Some of us will drive around and around because we don't like to parallel park, do we? Some things are easy. Some things are difficult. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, this is difficult. Yes, this is narrow. But you can do it if you put the choices in place to do that. And so this morning, that's the thoughts for us. Where am I in that contrast? Where am I in these things? Do I want the life that Jesus offers me? It's there if I'll take it. And on all the benefits that come with that, a glorious fellowship in the kingdom of God, a work and a purpose put upon me to make a difference in people's lives, and then to be among those many, many thousands of people someday who stand before that throne, who bow to our needs, and say, holy, holy, holy to the great God Almighty. A matter of choices. I often wonder, when Jesus finished that sermon, if anybody came out and shook his hand and said, good sermon, see you next week. I wonder that. I wonder if some people just walked away and thought, that's different. Sure wasn't what I expected. I wonder if some people just stood there for a while with tears coming down their eyes. Because they've never thought heaven could be possible for them. I wonder if some people look down in shame because their hearts were full of worry, anger, and sin. And they realized that. But Jesus told them how to change from that. And I wonder if some people just went away just thinking, well, whatever. You know, I'll hear somebody else next week. Doesn't matter. But what about us? What about us? I appreciate when folks compliment me. I appreciate when you say, good sermon, Roger. That means something to me. But I like it better when somebody just walks out silently and I can see the wheels turning in their head. Or somebody walks out with a tear coming down their eye because they realize it's not Roger. It's Jesus. Am I right with Jesus? And Jesus has given me a chance I've messed up. I should be kicked out. But Jesus is saying, you, you can come. Yeah, it's narrow. It's going to be hard. And we got to quit making it soft. we got to quit telling people, it's easy to be a Christian, because it's not. But it's not impossible. And we can do it. If we can help you. If you want us to pray, we will pray. We want to get together and open the Bible. Let's get together and open the Bible. If you know enough to be baptized, because that's where this leads to. If I want to follow Jesus, I need to be baptized. And then I need to follow him all the days of my life. i got to realize there's a path. 
And that path isn't popular. That path doesn't make the magazines. That path isn't what the movies are about. That path is the path of Jesus. And I've got to stick to that path. Stay right behind Jesus, so close I could touch him, so that someday, when all this life is over, I will be among the glorious who's in heaven. That's what Jesus is driving at. Won't you come? Let's stand and sing.